those that we recognize this morning. We will be honored to present you with a cake of sweet tea and we'll be able to share it with you from this table. Once again, take out your glow cracks, hold them up, and let's have a prayer as we show this tea to people. Father in heaven, you see these cracks that carry the sweetest tea. Father, use this tea to lead a life to you. For we ask this in his name. there for five million years, this nightmare will seem like a bad night in a hotel. I love that line. I'm going to remember that for some sermon, I'll tell you. Todd Gibson was not always known for that. In fact, he was so far from being the person that you recognize, Rodney Gibson, especially when he saw the suffering of the world. But it was God's love that turned the tide. Tonight, as we present this message called Territorial Prayer, once again, I'd like to invite you to pray with me. And let us say a blessing and join me as I pray for him and you pray for each other through our song, Spirit of the Living God, called A Place. Before he opens his message to us, make the, make the words of his spirit work as we want to hear your voice. And Lord, in what he shares with us, may we draw one step closer to Jesus Christ. May we see him through our eyes. Father, we ask your blessing upon this message as we try to live here tonight. And we pray for ourselves that the Holy Spirit will speak to our hearts through that message. And for that, we sing this prayer.
institutions or anything, but we just heard him and we're having conversation about something, I don't know what. And then he stopped walking the front door, and as I was heading over to sit with him in the living room to have this conversation, his wife emerged from the kitchen with a platter covered with what looked to me like something really yummy. And she held out the platter with one hand, and she said, Tucker, these are bite-sized blueberry muffins. Would you like some? I said, well, Chuck, yes, I would. So I took one, and I slithered it in my mouth. I chewed it up, and I swallowed, and it was really tasty. But she said, there are nine. I said, Tucker, you're kidding me. She said, would you like another one? I said, well, in fact, yes, I would. So I took another one, and I ate it. Still, she's stunned about something. She's frozen, looking at me like I've done something wrong. And then she said, why are you putting the whole thing in your mouth at once and eating it? I said, did you not say that they were bite-sized blueberry muffins? She said, yes, but, but no. I said, you show me how it's done. So I'd like a third one. And then she took one of those little blueberry muffins, and she pulled it off the platter. And I don't know why, this is a British thing, not an American thing, she stuck it on one finger. And it took her like three, four, five bites to eat that little thing. I said, no, I'll show you how it's done. And she took another little bite. Ate the whole thing in one bite. It was so good. So I've discovered that there are two kinds of people in the world. There are big bite people and there are little bite people. I don't know if you're a big bite person or a little bite person, but I'm going to ask you this evening, who's really a big bite person, I'm going to share with you a lot of information. Now, I've tried to organize it in such a way that it'll make sense, but I'm going to ask you to process with me a very enormous picture that if we can get it, it's so beautiful, it's so breathtaking, it's so amazing. The payoff is worth it. We're going to work through some, some biblical passages, and if we can work our way through these passages, a whole lot of terror will be destroyed. We're going to know exactly who we are and exactly what we ought to do in order to position ourselves strategically for the advancement of God's kingdom in this world. So get ready to take a big bite. You may want to sit up a little straighter, breathe a little deeper, oxygenate your frontal lobes. That's where you're going to need it right now. Let's study the Word of God together. Now, first of all, I want to call your attention to Voyager. What a wonder of human ingenuity. Voyager in 1977 took off from planet Earth. It traveled, check this out, at 140,000 miles an hour straight out from the Earth into space. It was the first human object to leave our solar system. 140,000 miles. After 13 years of constant travel at that speed, Voyager was 3.7 billion miles from Earth. 
Joseph is about to make this massive grand ark and begin turning around. I mean, that's all there. A command center on earth fed to Voyager through a computer system that is itself a wonder, but it could communicate that far away, said, before you go any further, turn around and take a series of photos. That was the message that Voyager gave. Took a series of photos, and an image was captured that if it isn't, ought to be your favorite photo ever taken. Because this photo captured our little bitty world suspended in the, and let, let me get a little closer, suspended in a flywheel. Did you know that, did you know that we are not on planet Earth the recipient of all the rays of the sun? It's so massive that our little planet is sealed and energized under the warmth of a single blanket. And there we are, that tiny speck right there, that's planet Earth. That's where you live, that's where I live, planet Earth. Carl Sagan, who's famous, celebrated astronomer, looking at this photo says, look again at that dot. Look again at that dot, he says. That's here. That's home. That's us. And then he coined this term. He pulled a word out of human vocabulary to describe where we live. He says, a mote of dust suspended in a flywheel. We are so landing on the moon and looking back, our view was not going to be so bad. He described planet Earth as a tiny seed, pretty and blue. That's where we live. That's where we live. The Earth is a lot of things. The Earth is a lot of things. It is a 6.6 quadrillion times, sextillion times, object floating in space that makes Earth. That's planet Earth. Planet Earth is a lot of things. It's spinning at 67,000 miles an hour, and we're not getting dizzy. But the Earth is something else. The Earth, I'm going to attempt to persuade you this evening, is a territory unto itself. Planet Earth is a territory unto its feet. And I'm going to attempt, by God's grace, through his word, to show it to you that your little part in this world, your little piece of terra firma, your little, your home, your children, your marriage, is a territory unto its feet. Your town, your church, is in the crosshair of its enemies. And it's the object of God's supreme regard, planet Earth. And Scripture tells us 
that our world, our earth, and everything we stand behind on this planet is a spectacle, Paul says. The Greek word is a theatron, to make you get the visual feel. I think that's where, that's where Shakespeare must have gotten his poetic lines, that the world is a stage and we're the actors. We're under observation, the whole universe looking on. But we need to get the big picture. We need to pan way out. We need to pan way out. We need to back up like Armstrong did. We need to back up like Voyager did. And we need to take in the big picture of what it means to be human. And our part, our place in this universe, most specifically in the chronology of creation. In the chronology of creation. And a brilliant insight under inspiration, Job chapter 38, verses 4 and 7 are remarkable for the clarity they bring. Job had been complaining and complaining about the suffering he was enduring. He had gone on for chapters complaining to God for what he was going through. And you have to admit, he was going through a lot. God didn't blame him, but God began to open up to him that what was happening in his life had a cosmic dimension. And so at one point, God says to Job in a rhetorical question, were you there when I laid the foundations of the earth? Well, he's on the earth, and he's a member of the human race, hence it's rhetorical. The obviously implied answer is, no, you weren't there. No, you were not there when I laid the foundations of the earth. And then this line, watch this, verse 7 when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Now, do you notice something in this passage? The subject of the passage is the creation of planet Earth. This tiny, pretty heap. This mote of dust in a sunbeam. And in describing the creation of planet Earth, God says, hey, Job, by the way, when planet Earth and the human race were created, there were already some rational, intelligent, sentient creatures in existence. In fact, they witnessed the creation of the world. They sang when this world was created, Job. They sang over it. They were filled with joy at the creation of planet Earth. So note the chronology of creation. According to the passage, there are categories of beings that are not human that predate the existence of human beings. Yes or no? Yeah. Otherwise, they couldn't have witnessed our creation. They were there. All the world is a stage, Shakespeare said. We're the actors. The world and planet Earth is a spectacle to many angels, Paul says. It's a theatron. It's a theater. Earth is a stage, and we're on it. And there are those looking on. Well, Ellen White, commenting on this passage. By the way, if you are not a Seventh-day Adventist, either here with us this evening, or you are viewing, um, welcome to this Seventh-day Adventist event. We're so glad that you're joining us. You're going to be blessed by this material. And I want to tell you that we, as Seventh-day Adventists, take the Bible and the Bible alone as our authority for the formation of doctrine. And we never quote, and this is true, you should stop, but we never quote Ellen White as authority.
authoritative to prove or to demonstrate doctrine or theology. We are quoting here, I'm quoting here, supplemental to what Scripture says just to expand and to enhance our understanding of what's actually there in the Bible. So Ellen White's commenting on this passage. Watch this. She says, all heaven, all heaven took a deep and joyful interest in the creation of the world and of man, mankind. Human beings were, check out this language, a new and distinct order, a new and distinct order. Again, like Job 38, this implies that there are other what? Orders. Other orders of being. Other kinds of being. Just like Job 38 says. And human beings were new and distinct. I mean, look at the multiplicity of creatures in the animal kingdom. I mean, you've got a platypus and a zebra and a bunny rabbit and a lion. Certainly God can create a variety of different beings or creatures, right? So it would be rather egocentric of us to think that we're the only ones who think thoughts and feel feelings and make choices. No, the universe, according to Scripture, has categories of beings that are called morning stars and sons of God. Job 38 again. Morning stars and sons of God who predate humanity and witnessed our creation. Now, who are the morning stars? Well, this is a symbol in Scripture for angels. If you fast forward to Revelation chapter 1, verse 20, we're just told straight up, very clear, the symbol is unraveled. The stars are the angels. So when the morning stars witnessed our creation, it simply means poetically that angels witnessed the creation of the universe. Right? In fact, the angel that was at the head of the angelic order is specifically called the son of the morning, the morning star. Lucifer, which means luminous. It means, the name Lucifer means son of the morning. This implies that he was the first angel ever created as kind of a, the original template for all angels to follow, and he was their leader. He's called in Ezekiel 28 the, the seal of perfection, the seal of angelic perfection. God created Lucifer and all the other angels. These are the stars in Job 38. But who are the sons of God? Well, in the context of Job itself, we know who the sons of God are because in chapter 38, the sons of God witnessed the creation of the world. But in chapter 1, as we read last evening, thou there was a wherein the, here's our term, sons of God, the sons of God, what did they do? What's our next word? They came. That means they traveled. So they live somewhere in the universe, don't they? They're not omnipresent like God. They're created beings. So in order to get where God is, they have to come. They have to travel. They have to move to get where God is. And there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. The second came also among them. Some kind of heavenly congress. And they all came together. And we remember from last night the verses that follow. And Satan came also among them. And the Lord said unto Satan, From where? Remember, it was the point of origin question we learned last night. From where do you come? What territory in my vast universe are you here to supposedly represent? And Satan claimed, what territory in God's universe? Planet Earth. How do we get it? Well, because
the way God has given us rules, Adam and Eve, humanity, gave it to him in an act of abdication. They abdicated their position of rulership over the earth and gave it to the fallen angel, Lucifer, now who goes by the name Satan, which means adversary. So two of the sons of God, this is interesting, watch this. The term occurs in the genealogy of Jesus in Luke in a very fascinating manner. Watch this. In the genealogies that are unfolded in Luke, every person is the son of someone, the son of someone, the son of someone, until going back, 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 the son of Canaan, the son of Enoch, the son of Seth, the son of who's that guy? Adam, and Adam is the son of God. Wait. Well, of course, because he didn't have a human mom and dad. There's a sense in which Adam is uniquely the son of God, right? He was created as the first human being and therefore occupied the position of the son of God in a primary sense. All of us are sons and daughters of God by procreation. Adam is the son of God by creation. He didn't have a belly button at origin. Maybe he did. Maybe God put one there for aesthetics. I don't know. But have a belly button. I don't know. Because you would look weird without one. So God probably gave it to you. Anyways, I digress. Watch this. So if Adam is the son of God in a primary sense as the representative of the human race, just reason with me for a minute. If the fall of mankind had never occurred, hypothetically, watch this. If sin had never entered the world, if humanity had never fallen, are you with me? Would Adam and Eve still be alive, yes or no? Yes, because according to Romans chapter 5 and 6, death entered the world through sin. If sin had never occurred, Adam and Eve would still be alive. They'd be approximately 6,000 years old and look 27. Wouldn't that be great? Okay, so they'd still be alive. Okay, where would they live? Like over in Baghdad, basically. That's where we think Eden probably was. Somewhere over there, they'd still live there, okay? They'd still be alive. They'd live over in Baghdad, which wouldn't be called Baghdad. It'd be called Eden. Now watch this. If sin had never occurred and Adam and Eve were still alive, who would Adam and Eve be becoming? Mom and dad moment, but I love that one. They would be something like our great, 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 totally great grandma and grandpa, and they would look 27. heads of the human race in planet earth and then when the day came for the sons of god to be called to come before the lord who would go on our behalf as humans adam would go to represent us but now the devil claims to be the representative head of the human race and shows up in this heavenly scene are you tracking with me so far okay so watch this this is amazing what we're suggesting is that there's more to our world and our universe than meets the naked eye. The Apostle Paul says that there are rulers and authorities in the heavenly realm. If you like the King James Version better, your NIV would just sound better. Principalities and powers in the heavenly realm, in heavenly places. Okay, so what do rulers and authorities, what does that language indicate? If there are rulers and authorities, there are popular opinion bases that are under their leadership, right? So the 
implication is that in the heavenly realm, beyond earth, there are possibilities. And to the acknowledge that, it's nothing like the Avengers or Star Trek or any of that other stuff. These people, or whatever they are, aren't free and weirdos. Just because I know God is creating you doesn't mean they're fucking weirdos. Okay, but here's the point. They exist. We don't know what they are. We don't know what they look like, but we do know a few things about them according to Scripture. If we saw them, we would encounter features that are non-human, like they would share certain aspects of our psychology. They would be rational, emotional, volitional creatures. Volitional meaning free will. In other words, a third of them could defect and rebel against God. That is the exercise of free will. They could listen to the reasoning process of Lucifer and buy into his lies. That's a rational side. They trust him. We're told in the Gospels that the unfallen angels were anxious when Jesus goes to Gethsemane. And Scott of Ages says they were so overcome with emotion that they wanted to eat the food to deliver him, but the Father forbade them. There's emotion. They're like us, but they're not like us. Jesus said they don't get married. They're not like men and women. They don't have gender, so they're losers, maybe in a different way. We don't know what they are. They're angels. Like a platypus is a platypus. Don't try to slice it too deep. It is what it is. Angels are whatever they are, and we don't know what they are. But we know that they are rational, emotional, and volitional. Okay, so there are rulers and authorities in heavenly places, but there's more than angels. There are stars and sons of God. The stars, according to Job, are the angelic order. The sons of God are the representative heads, the rulers and authorities of other population centers in the universe, other worlds, other planets in the universe. They're there. In fact, Scripture, I don't have time to show you this, Scripture actually promises that we will be freed up. Right now, our planet is quarantined. It's rather confining. We can't go anywhere. But the quarantine is going to be lifted, and we're going to be able to travel freely through the universe. You thought Gander Italy was safe. Wait till you get to go to the fields and meet the people there with their people, whatever. Okay, so watch this. Ellen White then comments and says, man, human being, what you and I are. Okay, man was the crowning act of the creation of God, made in the image of God and designed to be the counterpart of God. Angels, but mind blown. So all the angels and the sons of God are watching when they hear a conversation within the fellowship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The conversation went something like this. Let us make man in our image. Let's do something as much like us as possible, but not us. They won't be gods, but let's just, let's just get as close to what we are as we possibly can. Let's make beings who are in our image. But Satan, she goes on to say, has labored to obliterate the image of God in man and to imprint upon him, mankind, his own image. I don't know about you, but I'm determined by the grace of God to push back on that satanic enterprise. I don't want any of his image in me. I don't want any of his 
way of thinking and feeling and relating going on inside of you. The moment something like anger or hatred, something like impatience, something like rejection of somebody who's not like you, the, the moment something ugly rises up in me, I know that it is the work of the enemy, and by the grace of God, I'm pushing back on it, and I hope you are too, and saying, no, I want to be like Jesus. I want to be like Jesus in the way I think, in the way I feel, and in the way I behave. I want to be like Jesus. I want to love like God loves. I want his image to be restored in me. Now, watch this. What I'm suggesting, and I'm summarizing now what we've covered so far in order to have clarity, what I'm suggesting so far is that we live in an inhabitant universe, and we humans are not, are, are only, excuse me, are only a small part of the vast population out there. We're just, we're a, we're a mote of dust in a sunbeam. We're just but so important to God and to love the kingdom. So now I'm going to take you on a little crazy course of the book of Genesis because I believe in big picture clarity. Rather than looking at the minutia of verses right now, which is good to do, we'll do a little bit of that this evening as these next few nights unfold. But sometimes it's good to take the aerial view, to just back up and see what's going on, to do Voyager, as it were, and back up and say, ah, so that's what that's the world. So this, okay, so scripture, we're going to back up now. We're going to point out, and here's what's going on in Genesis 1 and 2. Track with me. Human beings created in God's image, God's image, and given dominion over the earth, placed in Eden, and given the task, what a task, of filling the whole earth with beauty and relational flow. That's Genesis 1 and 2. God created human beings with the capacity for expanding the circle of the family. Be fruitful and multiply. Subdue the earth. Make it all beautiful like Eden. I've given you an example right here in this little garden of what the whole planet would be like. We were stewards. We were made to steward the earth, not to rake it of its resources. So please, we were made to use the resources to beautify, beautify the planet and to beautify human existence. This was our original charge. This was our vocation. That's Genesis 1 and 2. And in Genesis 1 and 2, the whole thing is summarized with two words. It was good, 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 very good. It was utterly magnificent, beautiful. Adam and Eve were beautiful, head over heels in love with one another. There was not a single, could you, Helen White, terminology, there wasn't a single note of discord. They just loved each other with love for one another. And they were given a beautiful charge. That's Genesis 1 and 2. But then, then, check this out. God's original plan was that the domain of Eden would be, would be expanded to encompass the whole earth. Praise God. We were to be one big happy family. This is biblical. There would have never been, if the fall had never occurred, there would have never been any nations or borders or walls or hatred or war or ugly dying. Never been there. Now, I wrote this message with no reference to what's going on in our world right now, so don't take this personal if you're inclined to take the usage of the word walls personally. Um, the point is a gospel point, and it's biblical. And the point is that if human beings had never fallen, there would have never been any relational hostility at all. There would have been no separation, no segregation. There would have been nothing like relational discord. 
Then comes Genesis 3, however. In Genesis 3, we have the fall of mankind, which we discovered last night, like Phil, that the dominion was transferred to an invading enemy. Okay? The dominion given to Adam and Eve was transferred to an invading enemy, resulting in both the moral and the governmental fall of mankind. But check this out. We learned last night that God intervened. He didn't give up on the human race. Can I just pause and say this to you? God really, really likes you. And he wants you back. It sounds to me God is the grandma, your papa, your uncle, your uncle, home, your heart. He's watching you. He's pursuing you. He loves you with a love that only Calvary could express out of your heart. And so, right when the fall occurred, God intervened and he made a promise of his redemption. And as we learned last night, Genesis 3.15, the promise came in the form of a declaration of war against the kingdom of darkness. So sin in this context, sin in this context is, as scripture says, transgression of the law. But we know from scripture that the law that was transgressed is the law of what? Love. The whole law, Jesus said, is summarized as that. Love God, love people. Paul says the whole law is summarized. This is Romans 13 again. The whole law is summarized in love and doing no harm. Doing no harm. The law is no harm. The law is love that does no harm. So that law is the law that was violated, which is essentially saying that sin is the favoring of self over others. If you read the book Steps to Christ, Ellen White summarizes the fall of mankind with this very insightful line. She says, selfishness took the place of love, quote unquote. That's the whole thing. That's the fall of mankind. So sin is the favoring of self over others, which results in relational hostility, which we first see in Genesis 3, between those two people that were head over heels in love. Adam and Eve, suddenly he's blaming her, she's blaming God, the serpent, and the whole thing is going sideways. Relationally, which blames pastor, resulting in relational hostility and resulting, the biblical narrative continues to unfold, in the division of humanity into warring nations, which brings us to the continuation of the story. That's all Genesis 3. Now in Genesis 3 and 4, the bridge between the two, watch this, the fall of mankind is immediately manifested in relational disintegration because now selfishness has taken the place of love as the root of incidents. So what happens in chapter 3 is Adam and Eve become hostile to one another. What happens in chapter 4? Brothers become hostile to one another. So the hostility actually in one direction when Cain kills his brother Abel. We have the first act of murder and hostility. That's chapter 4. Then 5 through 9 of Genesis is a picture of that relational hostility that we first see between Cain and Abel, Adam and Eve, and then Cain and Abel. The relational hostility escalates as the principle of sin manifests itself in tribalism and violence, resulting in the necessity of the flood as an emergency intervention. God literally says in Genesis 6 that the world was filled with violence, so much so 
that he says in chapter 6, the end of all stuff that's come up before me, the extinction of the human race, it's right around the corner, God is saying, unless I intervene to save some nucleus of the human race so I can continue on to redeem them. The whole human race is about to be completely trashed by national hostility, violence, and evil. So God intervenes with a flood. He intervenes with a flood to save humanity, not because he got ticked off and blew out the handle. He had to intervene or we would have destroyed the world. So Genesis 10 then follows that after the flood, human beings, and this is crucially important for where we're going, so make sure you get this point. After the flood, human beings begin to form into nations. Genesis 10, which is rarely ever read because it's a whole bunch of names and places, it just seems boring. It's not. Okay? It's crucial, this chapter, because it shows us that after the flood, human beings begin to form into nations. And Genesis 10 actually delineates a total of 70 nations. And that number shows up later in the Gospels. But I want you to pay close terminology that is in Genesis 10, 70 nations. How many? 70, and put that in your pocket. Put that in your theological pocket. We're coming back to it in a minute. Genesis 11 then shows the first empire that was ever founded by a dude named Nimrod, who is described as a mighty hunter. In other words, his bloodthirstiness, his violent nature was manifesting itself. And he wasn't just a hunter. He was the founder of the first empire the Bible names, and that's Babylon. And so as Genesis chapter 11 comes on the scene, the Tower of Babel is built as a monument to human self-exaltation and rebellion against God. And God again intervenes. As he intervened with the flood, he intervenes. By the way, here's a principle. This is how God of love, this is how God of love operates. He didn't do that human beings are exercising their free will responsibly without the possibility of complete disintegration. God leans out to allow free will to be exercised. To the degree that we overreach to the point where we're about to self-destruct, God will intervene. Love wants us to grow and to flower and to mature into self-governing creatures who make good choices on the basis of good information. So God intervenes at times. He has to intervene at times so that we don't utterly destroy ourselves. So the Tower of Babel is built, and God intervenes by scattering the nations by confusing their language. He's intervened to thwart the consolidation of power. The scripture says that if I don't intervene, nothing will be held from withheld from them. They'll just they'll just again repeat what happened before the flood, and the whole human race will be destroyed through the consolidation of power and the oppression of the weak by the strong. The whole world will become, as it were, a Rwanda or Afghanistan. And God says, I've got to intervene in order to somehow keep this salvation project, this salvation enterprise on track. Because as we're about to see, God has a plan. So in Genesis 12, after Babylon is founded, after Babel is is pulled apart by an intervention of God, nations are forming, and God does something. In chapter 12, 
Genesis 38 is the story of God calling a guy named Abram, who later in his name is Abraham, which means the father of many. God calls Abram out of Babylon and establishes the nation of Israel as his chosen people, not because God saved Abram, not because God is interested in saving some but not others. God calls Israel out to send them in. God does not play favorites. There is not ethnic elitism here. God says, Abram, I'm calling you out in order to establish something different. Because all the other nations are operating by the principle of anti-love. All the other nations are operating by the principle of coercion and violence. But I'm going to establish a new kind of nation with Israel. So Abraham is called out. And God puts his finger, this is crucial, in chapter 12 tells us, I'm calling you out, Abraham, and here's where the project is going. I'm calling you out, and Abraham is you all. It's a cryptic promise at this point, but he's telling Abram, listen, listen, you're going to start having children. You you and Sarah, you're going to become a little baby factory, and we're going to crank them out one. (laughs) And that one, Isaac, is going to bust you up laughing. So they named him Isaac, which means laughter, because they thought old people couldn't do it, and they did it. So Sarah is laughing behind the curtain according to the story and Abram's like I don't think you should laugh at that you just did something remarkable and she says what do you mean they did it and God says to Abram I heard your wife laughing about this but there's nothing too hard for her which is an amazing story so they name Isaac and the promise is going to be one in which the nation of Israel as established as God's chosen people watch this has a right to the nation God never intended for Israel to be a elite, segregated, separated people who imagine themselves to be better than everybody else. He called them out for a mission. They were supposed to be an engine of evangelism to the world, but they became elitist in their own thinking. And it was never God's plan. God made them as a light to the nations, and the lineage through which Messiah would eventually come. So that's 12 years of wisdom. Then, in 39 through 50, I didn't have to do it this way, otherwise I would have had to write chapter 40. So, okay. Extreme family dysfunction in chapters 39 through 50. I mean extreme family dysfunction. Like what's going on in your family right now. Extreme family dysfunction results in Joseph becoming a slave in Egypt. Israel relocates then to where? To Egypt. You know the story, okay? And after that, after the death of Joseph, what happens to Israel? All of Jacob's children and their posterity, they become an enslaved people in Egypt. And that brings us to the end of the book of Genesis and then its exodus. And you really know this, right? You're the Dominican vet here the whole book of Exodus. (laughs) Calm down, I'm not. I'm just going to say to you on Exodus that in Exodus, God calls Abram out of Babylon in Genesis, right? He establishes the nation of Israel as a chosen people, as a light to the nations, and the lineage through which Messiah will come. Okay, that's a summary of what's going on in Genesis. Now watch this. Exodus now, the people are enslaved, and as they are enslaved, the salvation project needs to develop. And God explains to Israel in Exodus 19, you are a kingdom of priests. 
That's what it means to mediate the knowledge of God to others. I'm calling you to mediate the beauty of God's love and faithful display to the rest of the world. Now, there's a piece of the picture that needs to be filled in by Deuteronomy 32. Deuteronomy 32 is rarely ever considered in any kind of significant way because we don't know what to make of it, but you and I do know what to make of it when we look at it because we're a people of the great controversy war camp. As we discovered last night at Sunday School Adventists, we believe not in determinism or the idea that God's primary attribute is control. God is all-powerful, but his power serves his love. So God's love is the primary attribute that Advent is celebrating. We say God's love and his power is marshaled for the spread of his love. So God isn't all-powerful for the sake of power. He's all-powerful for the sake of love. Are you tracking with me? So God is love, and love is the principle of his character, the great truth, which arouses the possibility of love. Now we, with that great controversy lens, we can understand what's going on in Deuteronomy 32. So watch this. In Deuteronomy 32, verse 1, God says through Moses, Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak, and let the earth hear the words of my mouth. So notice in this opening text of Deuteronomy 32, the whole universe is summoned to voice the inhabitants of earth. Hey, earthlings, listen up. And the inhabitants of heaven. Hey, everybody out there in the vast populated universe, sit up and take notice. So whatever is happening in Deuteronomy 32, it is crucial to the unfolding of the great controversy on earth and the plan of salvation. And God wants the whole universe to pay attention. Okay, so what's going on? In verse 8, God explains what's going on. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, that is, their allotments of land. You remember Tower of Babel? What happened at the Tower of Babel? God did what with those people that were consolidating into one massive empire? He scattered them. And as God scattered them, how many nations were there then that are named in Genesis 10? Seventy. So when the Most High, Deuteronomy 32 is explaining something here. When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, their allotments of land, when he divided mankind up into nations, watch this, he fixed the borders of the peoples, the what of the peoples? Borders of the people according to the number of the sons of God. Now, watch this. Another version, which is the Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Old Testament, which would have been the Bible that you Jews and the apostles would have had. When the Most High, this is how it renders it. God explains it. When the Most High divided the nations, when he separated the sons of Adam, human beings, he set the bounds of the nations according to the number of the strangers of God. What's going on here? Who's tracking me? I told you to sit up straight. Don't blame me if you're not tracking. I told you to sit up straight. I told you to ask your neighbor's son-in-law. <laughs> okay, 
This is the new, maybe it sounds crazy, but this is really a paraphrase, but it does really good here. When the Most High assigned land to the nations, what did the Most High do? He assigned land to the nations. When he divided up the human race, what did he do, everybody? Divided up the human race, he established their what? Boundaries, the boundaries of the peoples according to the number of the angelic beings. So what's going on here? You have nations that are dividing up and angels are given charge over to those nations. Now, when we fast forward to the New Testament, we know from Jesus himself in chapter 18 of Matthew, verse 10, we know that every human being, every child is given a guardian. Jesus says, do not mess with little kids because do you not know that they're angels who always behold the face of their father in heaven? And it would be better for you to have a big rock tied around your neck and be thrown in the ocean than to hurt a child. Because everyone has an angel in them. So not only, according to the Deuteronomy 32 worldview, not only do the angels, not only do individual humans have guardian angels, but nations have guardian angels that are given charge over the nations God divided up to be his nation. The nations are given angelic charge in an allowance, you might say. God allows. That's what happens. Because he's not holy to you. What did I just say? He's not holy to you. Watch this. But the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, or Israel, his allotted heritage. So are you following the pattern? Watch this. Deuteronomy 32. When God divided up the nations, right, into various quarters, angels took up their positions over those nations, but God took personal responsibility for Israel. Why? Because God, in this great controversy, is holding Israel as a territory of resistance against demonic control. Israel is the project, the nation, the subgroup through which God is maintaining a present and a teaching medium in the world. Because what happened with the story? And here's why we went through the whole story. What happens to the human race when God doesn't intervene? Violence and hostility and demonic control to the point where human beings come to bring about self-destruction. So God says, not again. I'm going to hold a territory on earth. Now, Satan has claimed all of earth, like we learned last week. He's the ruler of this world, the God of this age, the prince of the power of the air. But God says, no, I'm going to hold a territory I'm going to teach my people, my principles, my law, my love. And those principles are going to go out because it will be a kingdom of priests. And I will hold Israel in a hostile world like my people. Now watch this. This is remarkable. Verse 10 of Deuteronomy 32. See, that's God found him as in founding the nation, not as in I just found my lost sheep but as in the founding of a nation. 
God found Israel in a desert land and in a howling waste of the wilderness. And he, that's God, watch this. You're going to love this. God encircled him. Who's him? Israel is represented as a him, as a singular corporate person. God encircled Israel, cared for them, and he kept them with the apple of his eye. So God, what is God saying here? I am personally presiding over this nation. I am personally presiding over this nation. And then verse 12, the Lord, what's that next word? Alone. Why would he say the Lord alone? Well, because what did we just read? The other nations, what's going on with them? Other beings, they're about to discover who they are, are presiding over them. And God is saying, nope, I'm going to alone guide Israel and no foreign God. God was with him, with Israel. I am the God of Israel. No foreign God is going to have access. Nope, they want to. Then he, that's Israel, forsook God. There's only one way. God has promised, you're the apple of my eye. I will care for you. You are going to be the object of my care and affection. I'm going to keep you. I'm going to guide you. No other God is going to have charge over you. You alone. There's only one way out of that arrangement. God's not walking away. But Israel forsook God who made him and stopped at the rock of his salvation. They, that's Israel, served him, that's Yahweh, to jealousy. Verse 12, straight off out. Strange gods with the with abominations, they, Israel, provoked God, Yahweh, to anger. What's Israel doing? God has told them, quote, for himself, I'm going to keep you, I'm going to guide you, I'm going to protect you. And what are they doing? They're wandering outside of that protective circle, and they are, what are they doing? They are philandering with the enemy. And as they are entering into these illicit arrangements, watch what happens in verse 17. They, Israel, sacrificed to demons that were no they had never known new gods that had come recently whom your fathers never feared or dreaded or abhorred. So think with me on that. Who are these gods according to this text? Say it out loud. Demons. Demons. And throughout scripture these gods are named. I'm giving you just a few of them. These are some of the gods that are actually named in the biblical narrative. You have Molech and Dagon and Ishtar and Baal and Marduk and Tiamat. These are gods that are named. Now, we're inclined to think, well, those are just the figments of their imagination and their little statues on shelves. They're just idols. They're not real beings. According to Scripture, those idols have demons behind them who are actual fallen angels that are masquerading as gods over the nation. That's the punchline. And God says, I alone will preside over Israel. Now watch this. 
you remember this last night, right? Well, let me tell it to you. Then together, taking him, Jesus, up on a high mountain, he showed him all the what of the world? The kingdom, the nations of the world. What do we know now about the nations? We know that there are 70 of them that are delineated. Do we know that? We know that um, fallen angels masquerading as gods took up positions over those fallen nations. We know that much. And we know that God held Israel in that hostile environment in an effort to preserve the light of the law and the gospel and to prepare a witness through this Messiah to come that would begin Abraham's seed all the earth through. Yeah, we know that, don't we? Because now we're literate. We're biblically literate now. We know the story. So now when we come to the New Testament, we have nothing but aha moments. Like, oh, man, this whole thing is a seamless narrative. This is a story. Everything that's being taught in the New Testament has some kind of grounding in the old. And now we see that when Satan comes to Jesus and says, look at all the kingdoms of the world. I'll give them to you if you bow down and worship me because all of it was given to me. Do you remember last night? Who gave it to him? Adam and Eve, fallen human beings that gave the world over to a foreign lord. But that's chapter 4 of Luke. We're in what chapter of Luke? 4. What just happened? The devil offered Jesus the kingdoms of the world, and Jesus what? Refused. Jesus refused. Why did he refuse? We're still in chapter 4. Look at verse 43. I must preach the kingdom of God to other cities also, because for this purpose I was sent. Why did Jesus refuse Satan's offer of the kingdoms of the world? Because Jesus is taking it all back on the premise of his own kingdom principles. He's not going to bow to Satan and and acknowledge him as the ruler of this world because he alone is the rightful ruler of this world. And later on in chapter 4, he says, no, thank you, Satan, because, by the way, I'm taking it back anyway. I'm here for this purpose. I'm here to preach the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God has been spread. We're still still in what chapter of Luke? Chapter 4. What just happened in Luke chapter 4? All the kingdoms of the world were offered to Jesus by who? Satan. Jesus what? Refused. And then what? Declared, nah, I'm taking it by other means. Watch this. After these things, the Lord Jesus appointed how many? What did I ask you to put in your theological pocket? Seventy. Jesus has now done something remarkable. Let me give you the concept. There are two key numbers in the New Testament gospel. Twelve and seventy. Twelve has its rootings in Israel, the nation that was called of God to be a light to the other nations. The twelve apostles are now called as the new replica of old Israel to take old Israel's place so that Israel now becomes spiritual Israel and the Gentile believers are grafted in. Are you still with me? And then the other number, he calls the 12, check this out, this is amazing. He calls the 12 and he says to them, hey, you need to go preach the kingdom. The devil offered it to me, but I'm not taking it from him. I'm taking it from him in a way that he doesn't speak about. 
to preach the gospel of the kingdom. And then in addition to the 12, Jesus says that he appointed 70 others also and he did what? He sent them. What did he do? He sent them two by two before his face into every city and every place, which is territory land. Go out to the various places. Go to cities where he himself was about to go. So what is Jesus doing? Jesus is traveling around. He's traveling around to various cities, territories, homes for the kingdom of God. And he sends out the 12. He sends out 70. The number is not happenstance. And then in chapter 10, verses 8 and 9, whatever city you enter and they receive you, eat such things as are set before you. I'm sorry for that. This is not an Adventist text. You're going to have to roll with it. Okay. That was a joke. I'm not talking about that after that. Okay. So go, go. He's telling he's telling the 70, go out, go out and lay claim to city and towns. Preach the gospel, he says. Heal the sick in these places, wherever you go, and say to them, when every good deed you perform to bring relief to the suffering world, say, um, by the way, the kingdom of God has come near to you. Something new is happening. And the king of this new regime, he's here now. And everything ugly, horrible, painful is being overcome. When I just touch you and you felt relief, when I just became your friend and nobody was in between, when I just sat and ate with you at your table, because you're the same as me and I'm the same as you, you're not dead anymore. The kingdom of heaven has now come near to you in my affection, in my love, in my healing power. The kingdom of God is near. And this is how the gospel spreads. And then what happens? This is so remarkable. This is so remarkable. Then the 70 who went out and did this for a while, this little trial run, then the 70 returned with what? With joy. What were they so happy about? They returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. What did he send them out to? Go to cities and towns. Apparently, this must be an advantage in Deuteronomy 32. There are demonic forces that have laid claim to those cities. And Jesus is sending the 70 out to create a whole new 70. The 70 nations that were taken captive by demonic fallen angels masquerading as gods are now being taken back to human evangelism. Praise God. And he said to them, Jesus responded to them. They're all excited. Jesus, everywhere we went, as we healed people and blessed them, demons were getting nervous. They realized that we're here to take it all back in your name. And Jesus responded and said to them, to the 70, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. In the context of the scripture's evangelistic enterprise, as the 70 are evangelizing, Satan is losing 
control. He's losing territory. He's losing ground. He's losing his control over marriages and homes. He's losing control over towns and cities at local churches. You know who I'm talking to right now where all that bickering nonsense is going on and all that gossip that defames the character of God. Stop it in the name of Jesus. His kingdom is fallen. Babylon is fallen, is fallen. But now we need to understand ever so briefly that these territorial forces also have the organized forces. According to scripture, they have a ruler, and his name is Beelzebub. If he's their ruler, that means that they are organized under him. Jesus said through casting out a demon, through thoughts, that he would have a conversation with this demon briefly. That was tormenting this human being. He said, what's your name? And he answered saying, my name is what? Legion, for we are many. A legion in that historical context was a body of soldiers in the time of Augustus that consisted of 6,826 men. 6,100 were foot soldiers and 726 were horsemen. Something like that's going on. In other words, this poor human soul is being dominated by an entire legion of demonic forces. And Jesus says, get out. I'm taking this individual human back out of demonic control. Because these souls are not against flesh and blood, but against what? Say it out loud. But against what? Against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. The Gospel Commission was a territorial expansion project and God's love is our kingdom's governing law. Our goal is to communicate the wonder and beauty of God's love manifested in Christ in order to set in motion in marriages, in homes, in parent-child relationships, in communities, to set in motion the power of God's love as the ruling force of the new governing law, the new principle that that governs how people relate to one another. That's the Gospel Commission. I love the way C.S. Lewis summarizes this for us this evening. Oh, this is so powerful. He says, there is no neutral, there is no neutral ground in the universe. Every square inch, every split second is claimed by God and counterclaimed by Satan. That includes every square inch of your mind and heart, your home, all your relationships are in the crosshairs of satanic attack and all your relationships are under the pursuit of the Lord Jesus Christ who wants to bring beauty and healing and forgiveness and restoration to everything in your life. The victory of Christ is our victory, people. When Jesus died on the cross, Praise God. Everything changed forever. Everything changed. We can now look into one another's eyes with love and acceptance and forgiveness rather than hostility and judgment. We can lay claim to little kids in the name of Jesus by speaking with the gospel. 
and to make home for marriages by counseling them through their disruption and helping them to save that marriage. We can introduce God's principles everywhere, and Ellen White quotes it for us that we have known for centuries, with this incredible insight. In the place where sin abounded, God's grace must more abound. The earth itself, the very fields that sent you home as kids, is to you not only ransacked, but is holy. Our little world under the curse of sin, the one dark blot in his glorious creation, will be honored above all other worlds in the universe of God. Here, where the Son of God tabernacles in humanity, where the King of glory lives in trumpeting God, here, when he shall make all things new, the tabernacle of God will be with the bridegroom and the lamb, the whole thing recast as a single victorious act of triumph at Calvary. Your world, your city, your home, your heart is a territory under siege. The only question is this. Does your heart voluntarily belong to Jesus? Give him your heart. Give him your mind. Give him your remote control. Give him your home. Give him every square inch in every nanosecond of your existence that is not yours. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, thank you for the clarity of your word. Oh God, I hope it was clear. I hope, I hope, I hope that we are able to understand that we are in the midst of a great controversy that is very real, that is underway in our great world, in our great nation, in our great town, in our great home, in our great life. And may we voluntarily, Lord, choose to give ourselves and everything within the realm of our authority back to you. It is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for your time.